Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 11. We'll be there this morning. I'm going to have you stand in a few moments. I want to do a little bit of my introduction before. I always back up just a little bit because I know people here for the first time and for sake of context don't want them to be lost. But in our study of the book of Revelation, we are in the midst of the last three and a half years of what Matthew chapter 24 describes as the Great Tribulation. This is a time of unparalleled distress upon the earth, also mentioned in the same kind of terminology of Jacob's troubles by the prophet Daniel in chapter 12. The book of Revelation is an apocalyptic view of the future. It's a time when human history will culminate with a seven-year period of judgment from God upon sinful humanity and the fallen world that we live in. The seven sealed judgments have already passed in the first three and a half years. And simultaneously, a world ruler has ascended out of mankind. And uh, his power comes from the abyss that we've talked about, from the power of darkness. This man is uh, supernaturally possessed by the devil. And this world ruler promises, you know, what everybody wants to hear, uh, the promise of world peace. But at time he breaks his promise and defiles the newly built a temple that evidently will be present in Jerusalem. And when he does this, this will be called what the Bible refers to as the abomination of desolation. He will go to the temple, he will declare himself God, and he will cause the, the, uh, the offerings there to cease for the remainder three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, when the Jewish people hear this, of course, from John, the book of Revelation, this goes back into their minds in antiquity. In the years about 165, 167 B.C., a time just after Alexander the Great, his kingdom broke up, four great generals came from that kingdom, and one of them ruled over the area of Palestine. And he really gave rise to another leader called Antioch Epiphanes, or Epiphanes, and this man was a despot in every sense of the word. He was cruel, he was hateful, and he had no love for God or the Jewish people. And so he was a type of Antichrist. And um, this man went to the temple in uh, this time, and he profaned it. He slew uh, pigs on the altar, which of course we know to the Jews run holy. And his, he, he grew in great power, and he was a type of the Antichrist. And in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, this was said of him, but also as a type of the Antichrist. In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding and dark sentences shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy or practices also he shall cause craft, his craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many, and shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And so, when um, Matthew speaks of the abomination of desolation in, in Matthew chapter 24, when Daniel references here, and of course when John does, this is the event that's in the Jewish minds that's going to come again for a three and a half year period, as it did in 165, 167 B.C., uh, to the Jewish nation. This Antichrist that will be present then does this in response uh, to God's miraculous working during the time of tribulation. God will send down the sealed judgments, which He has done. We are in the midst of the trumpet judgments now. 
But also God will do wonders in that He will see 144,000 Jewish people saved. And these people will be witnesses, and they will, of course, see a greater number of the Jewish community saved. The tribulation really is about Jewish time. And the Antichrist protest, people turning to God by declaring Himself God. And so now we're in this period of three and a half years that is the great tribulation. These things are even worse than the sealed judgments. These wonders from heaven and, and, and these horrors from, you know, the, the abyss coming to the earth. And now we've been studying these seven escalating cataclysmic events that God is bringing upon the world. And we have this war now going on between Satan and, uh, you know, God. In our study, we are in an interlude. We are in what is known as a pause. Really, from chapter 10 to 14 is a bit of an interlude. We are between the sixth trumpet and the seventh and final trumpet. Now, when the seventh trumpet blows, which it has not yet, this really is the end of the end of the world. There will be seven rapid-fire, vile, or bold judgments that come from that that will happen in very rapid succession. And then will come the eschaton, or the second coming of Christ, the second advent, and then we'll be ushered into the millennial kingdom. Does everybody have all of that? Okay. <laughs> John has just witnessed a great angel standing with one foot in the sea and one sit on, on the land, you know, basically get, declaring that this judgment, this final woe judgment, this trumpet judgment is to come. And the Lord ends chapter 10 with saying, John, even in this difficult time, you must be a witness. Now that theme of being a witness continues into chapter 11. Let me ask you to stand if you would. So now you know exactly where we are in chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, verse number 1, and I believe we'll read to about the 13th verse. And of course John here is in view. And there was given me a reed likened to a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months, and three and a half years. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man, any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These, speaking of the two witnesses, have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast, the first time this individual is mentioned in the book of Revelation, the beast which that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people 
and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies, the two witnesses, three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they, the world that dwell upon the earth, shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell in the earthquake, were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments as we look into this um, wonderful, fascinating, curious text, uh, that Lord, we, we wouldn't just see, Lord, the drama of a future day unfold, but Lord, we would understand the sobriety that this is real, that this is coming. Well, this is coming for our planet, for humanity. And Lord, that we have a role in playing to be prepared for this great time. And so, Lord, help us to leave here making some application. And I ask for your help with this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. Throughout the history of humanity, God has always sent messengers from Him to the world to call them to repentance and to salvation. During the long, dark years of Israel's rebellion, the Lord warred His people through numerous and many different prophets. These prophets had a similar refrain, and that refrain was to turn from your evil ways. There are many examples of this preaching in the Old Testament. One particular one that would really convey the heart of what God has been saying for centuries is found in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse number 17, uh, 13. Let me read this. And it says, And yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets." Notwithstanding, despite this testimony, despite this preaching, despite this call of grace and repentance, notwithstanding the people, they would not hear but hardened their necks. Like the neck of their fathers, they did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected His statutes and His covenants that He made with the fathers, and, he, and His testimonies which He testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do and be like them. And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images, even two calves. Now, we refer to a, a specific event uh, after the days of Moses. And made a grove and worshipped all the host of heaven, and they served Baal, a false god. And they caused their sons and daughters, this is the, the height of their depravity during the days of the kings, and they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, where they literally offered them a sacrifice, and used divinations and enchantments, and sold themselves to do evil. 
in the sight of the Lord and to provoke him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel, his people, and removed them out of his sight. And there was none left but the tribe of Judah, only a remnant. Now, this story really has been occurring over and over in repetitive cycle, really since the days of Cain and Abel. God has messengers He sent to the people. Uh, people who are sinful have wayward hearts. They stray from God. They stray His commandments. They have affection and affinity to the world. And so people constantly need God's messenger prophets to call them back to Himself. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15, the Bible tells us that God sent His messengers. And here's the refrain, again and again, over and over, God in His mercy appealed to humanity to turn from their sin and to turn to Him. Jeremiah speaking about himself and being representative of all the prophets in chapter 44 verse 4 said this, How be it, speaking to God's people, I sent unto you all my servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate, but, and here was the most common response to God's preaching, but they hearken not nor incline their ear to turn from their wickedness. Wherefore, my fury and my anger was poured forth. And we've seen this over and over, God's response to wickedness, to punish them in the hopes to bring them to repentance. Now, this bleak history of Israel, and really mankind, is not without a ray of light. Just as the first text I read from 2 Kings 17, there was a remnant that was saved. Judah, in the midst of all this apostasy, as a general rule, served the God. Uh, in, in the days of, of Elijah, there were yet uh, hundreds of men who would not bow the knee. God has always kept a faithful few, a remnant for Himself. In the New Testament, just as in the Old Testament, prophets and preachers called um, others in the humanity to repentance and, and to grace. And so, in the New Dispensation, as in the Old Men had this same task. It really began with John the Baptist. We know his story of calling people to repentance. Of course, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ was the greatest preacher of all. And he called men to repentance and to turn from their evil ways and turn to grace. Others followed. There was Peter and James, Stephen and Philip. There was the twelve. And of course, perhaps the greatest preacher of the Lord himself, the Apostle Paul, who made a tremendous impact on the world. And of course, this gospel preaching, this call repentance did not stop there. It continued in the early church. It was given, this charge was given to Timothy and Titus. And of course, it's been given to us today to proclaim the gospel and to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this will also be true in the future. In the future, during earth's darkest and final hours, God will raise up witnesses. As we've already seen, the 144 who will be saved will be ambassadors for Christ in that time. But God will call forth, as introduced in our text, two what He calls witnesses. In the Greek, the words are similar to what we get martyr from. Men who will proclaim the gospel and in doing so in time give up their lives in the process. These two witnesses will fearlessly proclaim judgment upon the world and at the same time call men to repentance and grace, although the vast majority of humanity will fail to respond. This ministry will be given to them during the most difficult time to proclaim the truth that's ever existed. 
We know that in Jeremiah's day, he, he felt like he was going up against an iron wall. People would not respond. And this day will be even worse. And they will do this for three and one half years. These men will be God's last harbingers of hope before the final and dreadful seventh trumpet is blown and world history as we know it comes to a cataclysmic end. In our text, once again, John goes from spectator to participant. Um, he's asked to do something that is very similar that we've seen Ezekiel do. In Ezekiel, the early chapters, which is a prototype really of John, Ezekiel was asked to take the Word of God and eat it, and that it'd be, it'd be bittersweet, uh, the idea being that God's Word is, was wonderful and true, but people's response to it and treatment towards Him would sometimes be bitter. And here, a second time, John is asked to repeat something that Elijah did, I believe, like in the 40th through 42nd or 43rd chapters. And the angel gives to John a reed. Now, this reed would have been something that had been very common in Israel's day. It was a reed that grew in the wilderness, and it was long. It was usually about 10 feet tall. And so, being stable and straight, it was often used for measuring. And John is told to take one of these in his hand. And then he's used it as a measuring rod. And he's told to go measure a temple. And not just a temple, but the altar and all those who were worshiping therein. Now, this is given to John to measure the temple that evidently will be built in the tribulation period. Now, this purpose or the effort of measuring the temple was not to ascertain any physical dimensions. And we know that to be true because no numbers are given in response to John's measuring. But if we go back to the Old Testament and understand what measuring often implied, the measuring was meant to imply the declaration of ownership. In other words, he's saying, you go measure out these people. You measure out that temple. You claim those for your own. I brought property before, and often the first thing that you do is you go have a survey done. Because you want to know what belongs to you. And so God is basically saying, in this worst, darkest hour of humanity, in a time when it seems like Satan is ruling, people are given to idolatry, all is lost, I am saying there are going to be a group of people whom I will protect, who will be mine. They don't belong to the devil. There's still a light in the world, even in the darkest hour. And so this measuring is a way of saying to John and those who are hearing this message, the seven churches of Asia Minor, that listen, um, things may look bleak and dark for you right now. And if you remember when John was, uh, his contemporary audience were the seven churches in Asia Minor, what was happening in their world? Man, they were being persecuted. Uh, Polycarp and others, they, they, they were falling to the sword and, and they were being put on a stake. And uh, my guess is they were even wondering, is there a future for God's people? And he's saying, even at the end, there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a people of God that I will take care of and I will protect. And so that's the idea here is you go measure people as a way of saying there will always be people that belong to me. These people in John's day, you've got to remember historically, um, they really had to wonder. John probably wrote this or prophesied this letter about 90 A.D., 70 A.D., 71, 72 A.D., a Roman general came from Rome to Jerusalem. His name was Titus, and he destroyed their temple. 
He, 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 he destroyed it. Uh, Israel had revolted during this time against Rome a little bit. Uh, the response was to crush and destroy that rebellion. And so the Romans marched on it. We, we, we have pictures today of what that looked like, that uh, entry out of Israel. They, they, they held the menorah, things from the temple. And the city was decimated. So John is saying to his contemporary audience, there may not be a temple today. And the early church may look like it's faltering and in your persecution, but I we know God has measured out and reserved the people for Himself for all of eternity. And this had to be in their minds and hearts encouraging. Remember historically there were a number of temples. There was Solomon's temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then there was a temple built by Zechariah and Joshua. It was embellished later by Herod in Jesus' day. It's called Herod's temple. And so, this was a way of saying, though these temples have been destroyed, God's purposes continue, and they will go on. So, John is told to measure the temple. But something unique is happening. He says, don't measure all of it. Remember, the temple was, had a place in the middle called the Holy of the Holies, and then there were different courts. And then there's a larger part of the temple complex called the outer court. And in Jesus' day, and going back, Gentiles were not allowed, in the outer, allowed past the outer court. Matter of fact, uh, the temple walls had on it, that if Gentiles passed this particular place, that they in the Rome had given the provision to do this, that they could actually be put to death. If you uh, understand what's happening here uh, in, in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul is arrested, I believe in Ephesus, um, he's being arrested under the accusation that he took Gentiles into the temple. And that's what the big uproar is about in the Apostle Paul's day, that he did this. And of course, that was an untrue thing. But just to make the point, the outer court really belonged to the Gentiles. And so what he's saying in the text is, measure this, but don't measure the outer court. Because in the days that I have my few, and I, I say my people, the Gentile world as a whole will be rioting and fighting and warring against these people. Uh, it'll be a time of the, uh, what's called the time of the Gentiles, when all nations of the earth will be surrounding Israel. They'll be warned against God's people. So the outer court belongs to the world for now, but my people will be kept inside of the idea, inside safely with God. And so God says, Mark out a people for myself, and the world around them will hate them. Now in verse 3, we are abruptly introduced. So the Bible calls witnesses, and there are two of them. And they're thrust upon the scene, and they receive a special commissioning, which is implied in part by their title, witnesses, martyrs, those spokespersons for God. And they have a twofold task, and one is to declare God's judgment upon the world, which they will do in an um, amazing fashion. But they're also calling men to repentance, and evidently some will be saved because we know this, then they're saved. We see earlier in the tribulation, some saved under the altar of God who had been slain. So maybe a few would be saved in these last three and a half years. But these two men, given this commission, will be divinely protected and enabled uh, for the entirety of their ministry, which will last about three and a half years, um, from being harmed by the events around them. No, what's happening around them? Well, you're going to have the, we've already had the seven or six trumpet judgments coming, and they're going to be saved from that, as all God's people will be spared from that. 
But God's people at that time not, won't necessarily be despaired from the war of the devil. And so we'll be spared from God's judgment. Not we, we'll be gone. But people who would be saved will be spared from God's judgment. But the, the world and Satan will still be warned against them and many will be martyred. But these two individuals will be spared from all of it. No one will be able to harm them. And they'll go about their ministry in a symbolic way wearing sackcloth, which in the Old Testament was a way of calling men to repentance in a kind and type. John the Baptist for that and many other prophets, Elijah and others. And in verse 4, they're called the two olive trees and candlesticks. This is a reference to Zechariah chapter 2 in a reference to Joshua and Aaron. These two men who serve uh, uh, the refugees from Babylon in that, in that day when they were rebuilding uh, Zechariah's temple. And they're going to be messengers. The point is this in verse 4. These are two olive trees, two candlesticks. And the picture there in Revelation 2 and Zechariah was well that is that their power is going to come from a source of oil that's not in themselves. Their power is going to come from God. Okay. That's where all the preacher's powers are supposed to come from. That's right. um, I have, you know, I have, I can say words. Uh, I have natural abilities and inabilities to communicate. But what's so fascinating about preaching in God's Word is that even the most humble and incapable of servants can, can speak it out, and then God does something with it miraculously and divinely that empowers it and changes people's hearts. And of course, you and I all take comfort in that truth, and that's the idea here. These two men, this mission they're given is not in their own ability, not their own strength. Their protection doesn't come from themselves. But this is all divinely given by God. In verse 5, not only will they be empowered and protected by God, but they will be given even a greater power. And that power will be to destroy all those who oppose them. Um, these men are going to be seen as antagonists in the world. 99.999% um, of humanity will hate them. And because, uh, and, and, you know, people don't necessarily like, like preachers today, especially hellfire and brimstone preachers. And these are going to be fiery prophets, and they're going to be preaching, and people are going to hate it because they're all going to be worshiping the Antichrist and the devil and giving over to all these, these sorceries and idolatry. And, and these men are going to be incredibly blunt and forthright and have special power, and they're going to be despised, and they're going to be hated. And the Bible says that anything that would harm them, they're going to have this... <laughs> They are literally going to be fire-breathing preachers. Be so grateful that I don't have that power. Um, it's what the Bible says, that any that would oppose them would die in this manner. Is this metaphorical? I have no reason to take the events of chapter 11 as anything other than literal because of the language and the way the language is used. There are metaphors, illustrations in the book of Revelation. This chapter does not seem to present. There's, there's no word like in it or such as. This is like a literal description of what's going to happen. So fire-breathing prophets. In beginning of verse 6, we are given some clues to their identity. And, and I'll get to some moment. The reason they're going to be so hated is because they're going to add to the plagues of the people who are already suffering. And there's some clues to their identity. Now, knowing who they are is a little irrelevant, um, but we are curious. So, beginning of verse 6, we are given some clues to their identity. First of all, they have the power to stop the rain. Um, and they will do so for the entirety, 
specifically for three and one half years. Um, we're given, again, this is why some of the people hate them, if you can imagine. We get aggravated when it doesn't rain for three or four weeks here. The people realize these men are doing this will hate them even more. Secondly, they are given the power to turn water into blood. This will, again, just add to the plagues. Uh, a third of the water has already been plagued by wormwood. The oceans have been defiled by all the activity that's happened there. So, the, you know, the, ocean, the oceans have been destroyed. The water supply is now ever increasingly diminished. The hardship is, is unimaginable and adds to the misery. And thirdly, they'll both have power to smite the earth with various plagues. Again, not that it's important, but these could just be two men that God raises up. But in the Jewish mind and heart, there was this expectation that from the Old Testament, certain prophets could and might rise up to preach again. And that's why when Jesus does his miracles, someone asks, are you Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah is such a great preacher, there's this thought, well, are, are, are you him? Um, there are people who thought Enoch might come to the earth again. Well, why Enoch? Well, because he was translated to heaven. He never died. And so people, some Jews thought, well, he might come back to finish his mystery because he, he never died in that way. But in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, we're told that in the latter days, someone will come in the spirit of Elijah. And of course, some would say that'd be John the Baptist, but that was in the Jewish mind that Elijah might come back. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, it said that someone like Moses might return. Okay, so there's um, considerable thought that those are the two men who God um, brings back to earth to fulfill this particular very unique ministry. And there are some, some reasons for that. Elijah was taken to heaven on a special chariot in 2 Kings chapter 2. And so, you know, he was taken to heaven. Moses, you know, is implied that Moses died, but God himself hid and buried Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. We are told in Jude 1.19 that the devil and Michael, the archangel, disputed over the body of Moses. And so these two men seem to have had some kind of unique ending for maybe some preservation for later ministry. We do know this, at a time in his day, Elijah withheld the rain for how long? Three and a half years. We knew that Moses had the ability of the staff to turn water into blood. And plagues were used by these men to call men to repentance. And of course, added to that, circumstantial, um, is that these two men just so happened to appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, is that conclusive? No. Does Revelation say that? No. That's just for you to process because people ask, and so you've been told. <laughs> now, quite possibly, these are just two men that God raises up at that time, and if so, it doesn't alter what's happening in the text. But in verse 7, at the end of the tribulation period, while people will hate these men for smiting these plagues, the, the devil will be allowed up in the Antichrist to rise up like others have before that failed, but he will be successful and he will, he will kill them. Now, the name beast is mentioned here in Revelation for the very first time. It will be mentioned about 30 times more in the coming chapters. This is this person we refer to the Antichrist, supernaturally um, possessed from the abyss, most likely from the devil himself. And he will slay them in the streets and leave them there. 
for three and a half days in contempt and disdain, um, just, just to show you know, the hatred for them. So the world will gloat over their death and celebrate a very short victory. And they'll lie in the streets, and I believe it's Jerusalem. And uh, not that it matters, some people think Rome. It's called Sodom and Egypt. Sodom's the level of depravity. Egypt is slavery and bondage. But it does say the place where the Lord died. The reason I think it may be Jerusalem, because this very well may be the headquarters where the Antichrist um, rules from in that time, from his federation. Um, because we, we know he's already in the temple declaring himself God. Again, not super important, but most likely they're laying in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. Verse 10, so del- deliriously wicked and happy will be those that dwell upon the earth because they're deaths. They will actually create, declare a holiday and give gifts. Contextually, you've got to think, all this stuff's been happening to the earth. And these men have created some of it. So in their hearts and minds, humanity may be thinking, these men are behind it all. And with their death, we're free. The, the Antichrist, our ruler, is telling us all will be well. And so there, there's just going to be this unbelievable celebration around the globe at the death of these men. Until all of a sudden, the Spirit of God comes back into them, and they stand to their feet. And they hear a great voice come up here, and they ascend to heaven, and wouldn't you be terrified? Amen. And then it says the, remen- the remnant, see this, are, are, um, give God glory. I, I, I don't know who he's speaking about. This could be remnant speaking of those Jews who have not yet been saved. See this, and they turn to God. It could just be a way of saying that you know, wicked people realize there's a God, uh, but don't really get saved. But there, there is a response. And then the earthquake, a tenth of the city f- crumbles. It says 7,000 people are destroyed. But the vast majority of humanity does nothing. They're just further embittered. The themes here that underline the text, we've rehearsed before. That ultimate victory comes through suffering and sacrifice. This is something we need to understand. The text illustrates this, that ultimate victory comes through suffering, even through death. The two witnesses, they, they, they go through a lot, they're, they're killed, but in the end, they still rise. They still win. Jesus conquered Satan and his power over us through suffering. Um, he, he didn't just obliterate, but he went to the cross. And we win because Christ suffered and was given our hell. What was seemed to defeat turned to victory when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. The Bible teaches that that is the way that you and I are to conquer in the world today, through humility and meekness and suffering. We don't win today by dominating our enemies, fighting back against evil overtly and those that hurt us, but rather we win by grace. We win by love. We win by kindness. We we win by gentleness and meekness and self-control. And when we are given evil, we return that evil with grace and goodness. That's the way to winning in God's economy. There's an appropriate time to turn the cheek and to bless those who smite us and persecute us. We don't render evil for evil, but rather we win. We rise in the end in victory, even though we've been hurt. And we see this in the way the two witnesses are resurrected at the end. Another thing that we see run through the chapter is that we see spiritual security in Christ. We too have been measured. 
Um, the Lord Jesus Christ has sealed us. We belong to Him. We've been, the measuring rod has been applied to our hearts and minds in the evil of this world. As Romans 8 says, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. If, if those people in that day can survive that onslaught and be true to the end, how much more should we be able to today? We are safe and secured in Christ. But the third thing that I want to just very briefly leave with you today is this. It's related. I want you to think about this for application. God tends to raise up His best in the worst of times. God tends to raise up His best in the worst of times. I can say it this way, God expects from us our best when times are the most evil, when they're hard and difficult. The juxtaposition here in our language is, is not quite so obvious, but there's a, there's a juxtaposition between verses 1 and 2. There's verse 1 saying, I have a people, they're mine. But then the verse 2 is, there's a war against them. And there's a juxtaposition between verse 2 and verse 3. There's a war against my people, but I'm still going to have witnesses. So what's God saying? It doesn't matter how bad this world gets. I expect my people to be witnesses. I expect my people to be true. I will keep you spiritually. I, I, I will protect your hearts and souls. And, and, and the world may be able to trample on you and around you, but they can't destroy you. And God expects our best in the hardest times. These men, these witnesses, they found their power in Christ. And there's a truth and a principle is that God give, gave them and God gives us the greatest grace when the greatest grace is required. Okay? Everybody look up here. It's a lot of stuff. God gives the greatest grace and expects the most in the hardest and most difficult times. That's true today, and that'll be true in the future. Because we have access to God's grace, we, and how we respond to evil and unfairness and the vitriol of this world, we're without excuse in doing that minus grace. How many times in your life have you felt overwhelmed, overcome, Life's not fair. You kind of feel swallowed up by the events and circumstances of life. How many been times when you've allowed circumstances and difficulty to create anxiety and worry, stress, agitation, angst, and bitterness, or even the temptation to quit? I'm finishing the sermon yesterday, <laughs> and uh, this, is when the, this is when the Lord preaches to the preacher. And I'm from this message yesterday, and um, I have three preps today. Um, I'm involved in numerous crises with people. I'm emotionally tired. Um, the hours of my day are not enough, in my mind, to finish what I'm doing, and I feel myself not being happy. You're late. 
Yeah, we all, different roles, the same feelings. And I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm kind of wiped out and maybe even a little sharp. And I feel pressed and I do feel anxiety it's swimming in my stomach and my heart. You guys know that feeling. And then I realize, I think of this, that no temptation has seized you but is coming to man and God is able to provide a way. And the idea of temptation is bigger than like some sinful thing. It's just like the stresses of worry. There's nothing that's so big that we can't, with God's grace, handle and endure. And so, you know, the Lord speaks, you know, to me about this. Brings to my mind Isaiah chapter 59, verse 19. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the tribulation, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. It's like the Lord is saying, the standard's right here. You've got to have a better attitude than this. That verse, Isaiah 59, was written in a time in Israel's history that we, we know. Israel's gone. Syria's already taken them. Judah's left in Jerusalem. They've watched their brothers taken into captivity. Everything's falling around them. Now the Assyrians who destroyed their brothers are surrounding the city. There's hundreds of thousands of them around them. Their, their military has been defeated, really. They're in great attrition. They don't have even men to put on horses to mount a cavalry. It's desperate. They've been holed up. It's desperate. The man who wrote this, the one who comes in, God's resting like a flood, was Isaiah. Isaiah was alive in that day. So was Hezekiah. That was who was king. King is threatening. This Assyrian king's threatening Hezekiah. Hezekiah's like he can't take it. He runs to the temple. He falls on the altar. And he paraphrase, God help me. It's just too much. I'm gonna lose my country, I'm gonna lose my throne, I'm gonna lose my life. Shortly after that, God speaks to Isaiah and says, Hey, go say something to Hezekiah. Isaiah goes in and says, Hey, Hezekiah. The Lord's going to take care of this situation. When the enemy comes in like a flood, God will raise up a standard against them. And all of a sudden, uh, there's no human resources to make this happen. So God sends an angel. And 185,000 Assyrians are slain overnight. And so in a moment, they go from defeat to victory. But not just that, all the supplies they had that, not, that they were without is now provided by the army that is dead and gone. Life is never bigger than you. It may bigger, be bigger than you and your humanity. But when the enemy, when stresses, when heartache, when depression, when difficulty, when anxiety, when just the world comes in like a flood, God is bigger. Greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. It doesn't matter if an entire tribulation is happening around you. If the world is coming unsown and exploding, God has measured out those that are His. And we may suffer some hurt. We may, you know, we're not going to be spared all of this, but we are safe in the ark of Christ. We are safe in 
God. He makes a way. You and I cannot always expect physical and emotional Im immunity from all hurts in life, but we can always expect the power of grace wit within us to be bigger than the anxieties of life around us. You and I have been measured. We have been spiritually fortified in the midst of life's chaos. When troubles seem to surround us on every side and threaten to overwhelm us, we can call on a Heavenly Father who knows a way, has a way to raise a banner around us and to keep our hearts from evil. Isaiah went on to say, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, who trusteth in thee. Even during the days of tribulation, God expects all of us to apply ourselves to the grace of God, to be the two witnesses, to be the 144,000, to be his messengers. God expects the best from our lives, out of our hearts, from our attitudes. He expects the best of our efforts in the midst of life's most difficult moments. Matter of fact, that's when it's most important, and He gives the greatest grace. We have a source of oil. We, we're like a tree. We're like a lamp. We have a source of power and oil. And we can shine, and we can win, and we can overcome. Not by our own might and ability, but by the power and grace of God within us. When we've done all we can do to stand, what's God say? Stand some more. Today, we need to continue to be witnesses, to be faithful, to be true. The Bible says we are more than overcomers in Christ. When we are weak, then He is strong. Greater is He that is in us, and we can do all things through Christ which strengthens us. Today, I want to say to you, with the authority of God's Word, God expects from the members of Eastland Baptist Church and you as a child of God, He expects your best in the hardest times of life. And you can do it. Let me ask you to stand.